Hey everybody, welcome back to Riding and Polite. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Clark. And you might notice that this episode is coming out a week early, and that is because I wanted people to get a chance to go and check out some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about in this episode today. Uh, I'm speaking with my friend Sarah Jacqueline, who is an actor at the Annex Theater here in Baltimore, as well as the co-writer and director of the upcoming play, Win 800 Mice, which you can also see at the Annex Theater. Um, but we're also going to be talking about the current play that's running there called Stupid Ghost, which is running in its last week. So you can see it Thursday through Sunday at the Annex Theater at eight o'clock each night. So just wanted people to have a chance to go and check that out. You know, really the point of the show is to get some some attention and some some traction towards uh, a lot of the artists and and events that we talk about in the show. So definitely go and check out that show. It's really great. I saw it about two weeks ago. Um, so highly recommended. Uh, they also have a gala coming up on the 21st. So that's another reason I wanted to get this out. So people have time to mark their calendars. Uh, and lastly, one of the other things they have going on are acting classes uh, on Saturdays and Sundays. So we talk about all that as well as Sarah's acting and you know how she got into doing theater and doing stuff at the Annex. So all that and more uh, in my talk with her. Besides that, really not a lot going on. I guess I will know that since this episode is coming out early, I won't see you for two weeks, uh, but I'll be back on Halloween. Uh, so that's when the next episode is going to come out on the 31st. Um, I think I'm going to be Jordy LaForge for Halloween. I don't know if I do that. I'll post some pictures for you guys to see, but if you want to get in contact with me, you can email me at rodinandpolite.gmail.com as well as get uh, in touch at rodinandpolite.tumblr.com. Nothing else really going on, so enjoy the episode, and I'll see you in two weeks. If you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. And belief in yourself doesn't mean ego and telling everybody how great you are. No one cares whether you did Hamlet in the Kansas City Rep and you got great reviews. No one cares. Because everyone who's done Hamlet is here or has been here for a year or two. So you're outnumbered. Everybody's good here. Not everybody, but the good people are really here. So you gotta believe in yourself and then you gotta pick up people who are good, who also believe in you, one at a time. You have to have this thing in you that goes, I want this more than anything and it will separate you from those who want it to come to them. Robert Preston said this, he said it, it's being in the right place at the right time but then you have to deliver and you're gonna get your two minutes and it may be the first week you're in New York or the eighth year you're in New York but one day you're gonna sit there and they're gonna go go ahead read this scene and it's a scene with a casting director reading the part of Shirley MacLaine in terms of endearment, and you're playing a guy named Flap. That's your two minutes, and you gotta hit it.
I'm Sarah Jacklin, and I'm, I'm a company member um, at the Baltimore Annex Theater. You can check out our website at baltimoreannextheater.org. Um, and I'm just here with JC. Yeah. Uh, we used to used to work together a while ago at uh, Port Discovery, which was a place that had a lot of uh, really creative people. So it's really cool to see everybody years after we kind of moved apart doing a lot of really cool, interesting stuff. Yeah, I guess I actually, I interestingly, I quit Port Discovery around this time last year. My last day at Port Discovery was October 31st, 2015. And I, I quit with the um, concept in mind that I was going to be more heavily involved in theater and direct some plays. Mm -hmm. So I, I quit that actually, quit then in anticipation um, for directing a play that I did at the EMP Collective last winter called Anti-Claws, which was written by Alex Hacker, um, that I had been in the original cast of a few years earlier mm -hmm. um, at the Ellisine Theater, which is right next to the Club Charles, right across from the Charles Theater, which was where the first place that I ever um, acted or helped devise a piece of theater. So I had worked on this play and then kind of still had some feelings feelings about the play I wanted to explore. So I decided I was going to I was going to direct it. I had a lot nice. invested in that story personally, and I thought it was strange and I thought that it was doable mm -hmm. with like a kind of a limited budget. And it's like it was a it was just a four person play. It was about a couple and their child and like an evil Krampus that comes and destroys the family on all Christmas. Right. Hey. So we did that. It was fun. We actually did it all during Christmas week. Mm -hmm. So we got all of the all of the people who don't feel so joyful about Christmas coming to see our 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 Christmas um Christmas tragedy. Yeah. Um and I felt like I learned a lot by doing that and um felt a lot more confident than um a few months later, when my company, the Annex Theater, was um, putting together our season and trying to decide how we'd uh, do our next season, coming forward and being like, I am ready to direct. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm ready. Give me a cast of, of millions and right. a budget of millions, <laughs> and I'll do my best with it. Um, of course, like, it's more like it's a cast which is a big cast for me, a cast of eight mm -hmm. that I'm working with um, on the play that I'm working on now, 1-800-MICE, mm -hmm. and a budget of hundreds <laughs> and hundreds. Um, but again, planning on doing my best with that. Nice. Uh, well, you mentioned, so, so that play that you said was the first one that you acted in, um, before that, did you have any, were you involved in theater in any way? Interestingly, uh, not not really. I worked with the tech crew mm -hmm. at my um, high school theater department and was much more heavily involved in visual art. I was a painter, and I spent all my time doing figurative painting mm -hmm. at that time. Um, my high school theater department, which was Poolsville High School, did have a, a resident company called the Midnight Players. And they did a lot of Hello Dolly mm -hmm. and uh, Sound of Music. I think I was inspired by theater and I always went to the, the theater theatrical productions because I lived in a small town and it was football and theater. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't involved. My two favorite productions that I ever saw 
from my high the high school that I went to were f- long time before I went there, and it was Little Shop of Horrors. Mm-hmm. And guys and dolls. All right. Those were the two best things that my high school did. I wasn't involved with either of them. I was once in a one-act play called Lord of the Common Houseflies, in which I played half of the duo Sam and Eric and was tied to my scene partner um, and had to speak in unison. All right. That sounds challenging, I guess, just in terms of getting the, the timing down, right? Which is funny because things just come back around because last season, um, the piece that I helped um, devise with five other company members Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually with two more people that we rolled into the cast or three more people that we rolled into the cast, four more people that we rolled into the cast um, was also a tragic comic farce of Lord of the Flies. Mm -hmm. We did a a play called The Lord of Flies, um, which was a directorless collaborative um power vacuum yeah. of a play where we tried to sort out some of golding's ideas about uh doggy dog world with like a very sweet collaborative process right <laughs> how does now how does, how does working in a directorless play kind of you know come down and, and just in terms of not only the rehearsal of of the play but also just in terms of like the the night to night performance of it when you are you know maybe expecting somebody to do something and they don't do quite what you <laughs> were expecting them to do and then now you know any any kind of just like general breakdown that a director would handle like and now you're kind of just out there well one thing that's interesting is that in most cases in theater the director's work happens before opening night mm-hmm. and it's very rare unless you have occasionally have rehearsals scheduled for after opening that the director has much hands on a show after opening. Mm -hmm. You kind of hand as a director, you hand your show over to your stage manager after the Mm -hmm. play opens. And so it has to be something egregious. Like, you know, you dropped that line completely or um, you changed the entire scope of this character since opening. Um, You know, occasionally there are people who um, like, you know, it's, it's, easy to get inspired like inspired with new directions for a yeah. character sometimes when there's an audience so it's usually at that point sort of the stage manager's job to to kind of rein rein it in mm-hmm. we had a stage manager um mark wadley and he was great but he again was like our stage manager tiebreaker kind of um during the process Again, like I think what's necessary if you're working without a director and you want it to be successful um, is choose your collaborators Mm -hmm. well. And I have to say, um, I want to make sure it's a big cast and I don't want to forget anyone, but uh, Madison Cohen, Ryan Kidwell, Sarah Lamar, Dave Iden, um, Jake Budenz, um, Maddie, and... um, Oh, and Ren Pepitone were all in this play, and they were all just fantastic collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, we wrote the play together. We kind of outlined the outline of the story of Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. Um, we spent probably, you know, a hundred hours meeting together, first creating an outline, then kind of breaking down the outline, then kind of talking through how we wanted our novel idea of the play what kind of differences we wanted our lord of the flies was um in a research laboratory in like a weapons bioweapons research laboratory where like 
um, there had been a quarantine yeah. basically. So we were like, okay, so we like, for some reason we, we really still are attached to pigs. We still want to be hunting pigs. Mm-hmm. Like that's important. We still need to be hunting pigs. Uh, how do we make it so that it makes sense? You know? Um, so the collaboration started early and a lot of things that were like consensus um, driven decision-making and how the play would go had been already really talked about a lot character motivations had been talked about a lot Um, by the time we actually started blocking Mm -hmm. the play we had discussed a lot about what the character relationships were uh, who had power in a certain scene who didn't have power so that makes it a little bit easier when it comes to blocking especially with people who have some vocabulary about how that is conveyed Mm -hmm. um on on the stage that okay someone is going to come into your space and you're going to back up someone's going like they have the power in the scene we're going to illustrate that mm-hmm. um even just like where we're all standing so uh it was a i guess i also just came from i've come from some some loose directorial places like i started um m- making work at the yellow sign theater one of the first pieces that we did was the second piece we did, the first one was um, a Grand Guignol piece. Um, and the second piece was a piece called The Deadliest Feet, mm-hmm. which actually was like kind of dinner theater. Okay. It was um, a carnival where you came into the room and um, there were a few scripted scenes um, in which a trapeze artist died. Mm-hmm. And then there was like a hard stop and the audience was encouraged to just come over to the bar next door um, the club Charles and w- all the people in the play had to stay in character for the next 45 minutes while nice. um, people in the audience got to ask questions about the nature of the murder. Interesting. So that was all not scripted. There yeah. were like three scripted scenes. There were certain things we had uh, certain kinds of questions that we had decided that people could ask to get certain kinds of answers, but it was a very devised piece and there was no real, um, it was centered on the viewer. The viewer got to like determine the gaze, mm-hmm. which is something I think about. It's an interesting thing to think about on the stage versus, um, versus a film right? where the point of view is always pre-chosen for you so much. I think of, of successful staging is just really being able to like tighten, tighten the gaze of, um, the viewer, maybe when there's an ensemble cast doing six different things, but where do you really want them to be looking and what needs to be almost like not seen or hardly seen? Right. Um, and I think, uh, I think about this a lot too, just because, um, a lot of the plays that, that you're describing and, and the play that I saw that we could talk about in a little bit, uh, stupid ghost, which was at the annex theater, um, directed by Carly Bales. <laughs> um, you you mentioned film and i think a lot of people uh especially now i I talked about this with uh, another person who was on the show who also does theater just in regards to um the current way that people consume entertainment a lot of screens a lot of uh streaming a lot of uh you know just just getting their their entertainment kind of like on demand in a way on the go um and theater is something that you you can't stream it, you know what I mean? Like, you, you can watch a play, like, that's been recorded 
and that's cool and you can get like if you want to listen to like say the hamilton soundtrack or something like that mm-hmm. you get like a sense of what it's like to be there but um you know a lot of a lot of the plays especially the more experimental stuff like it's an experience that you have to go be in the space and kind of just absorb everything that's happening so uh what's what's kind of your pitch to people i guess in terms of people who maybe have an idea of what they think theater is or haven't been to a play in a long time or are just kind of not really looking at theater as like a a mode of not even entertainment but i mean again when you think about you know you read a book and it's entertaining but there's also a lot of uh just more i guess abstract value if you want to call it that just this a personal thing that you get from consuming that um that again i think is 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 different in theater but it can affect people in a in a different way again when you see a movie you know you might come out of it with a different experience than somebody else and very very much in the same way when you see a play especially a play that um you know might have a lot of different things going on visually a lot of different things going on just performance wise like uh just being able to see that and then discuss that with somebody right after that i think has a lot of value so uh that was a long rambling question but i guess <laughs> it's just more to the point i mean like with with modern theater what what do you think it is that that gets people to come out and see shows well i mean i think there's there's definitely in in baltimore um an increasing emerging community around theater so i kind of feel like i want to it's very contemporary in some ways what we're doing but in ways i think we hearken back to a vaudeville tradition mm-hmm. I was watching a great French film from 1945 called The Children of Paradise this week. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you see this film, um, it is about like sort of about two rising actors in um, like nine. I get like I'm trying to think of what the actual time period is. I think it's supposed to be maybe 20 years prior or maybe 40 years prior to like around the turn of the century. and they're in this this tiny they're tiny the phonembule I think like the theater that they are in mm-hmm. doing this and it's the off the off the um, grid it's their theater which is the annex yeah. it's the off the grid people's theater um, and everyone's laughing at how small the audiences mm-hmm. are but it's this brimming theater of hundreds of people. And there's this high balcony that they call um, in the film, they call the gods or the paradise. And the, there's this inversion of class mm-hmm. in the theater where the richest people are at the bottom and like the poorest people are at the top and mm-hmm. these nosebleeds, but they're like falling over the balcony and cheering and jeering. Right. And at the time um, that the film is about, it was actually not legal um, for actors to even speak. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, it's pantomime and the audience is screaming and the actors are silent. Yeah. Um, and so you look and I'm just like sort of inspired by that audience. Like, and I kind of look at it and say, oh, maybe like our audience hasn't really changed. Yeah. Like, and part of the reason that people come to see theater is to be in that, in that public space mm-hmm. while they're having entertainment like I actually think that maybe we're headed into the other direction where maybe in 15 years even sitting on the couch with your partner while you watch the same television show Mm -hmm. will start to be like too public 
a way to have entertainment. Yeah. We're going to become like more and more and more involved in our own right. specific entertainment. We're watching a film is closer maybe to reading a book because it's all happening internal in the mm -hmm. internal mind. But I think it makes us crave more for this experience of being in public, right. really being able to see others' reactions, engage others' reactions while seeing theater. And I think Baltimore has got an interesting tradition now, an emerging tradition or a rebirth in the tradition of live theater that is different than other cities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you go to New York, people off off broadway shows people are fighting to get tickets they're looking at all the websites to get the cheapest tickets right. to the new plays like people in new york everybody goes to see the theater mm -hmm. everyone goes to see it it's just one of the things that you do because you live in new york yeah. uh, i don't know that everyone realizes in baltimore that you have the opportunity almost to do that in baltimore right now yeah. there are great theater productions happening nearly every week that you can get into not for $75 or $120 like off-Broadway. I'm talking seven, fifteen, twenty-five dollars $25 shows that are just amazing and also like very specific to the world we live in. Mm -hmm. Really addressing, um, I feel like it's happening very fast. Also, from the Annex's perspective, a thing that differentiates, I think, the Annex from maybe some other um, theaters of similar size or similar makeup mm -hmm. um, in the city. Like, we, we love Single Carrot. Um, lots of props to Single Carrot. I think the one thing that sort of really differentiates the Annex and Single Carrot is that Single Carrot often, um, I think that the work that they tend to produce is often maybe those things that were really great in off-Broadway shows mm -hmm. or in the more offbeat theaters in other cities. And they're like, oh, that that's a great, clever script. They read it together. They decide they want to produce it. Much more often at the Annex that the work that's being produced was written in the past six months by people who are involved in the company. Mm -hmm. Like the 1-800-MICE, the play that I'm um, in rehearsals for directing, which opens on November 25th, uh, me and Carly Bales have been just uh, adapting this play since August. Mm -hmm. So the the choices that we've made and how to adapt it and how to make it relevant to our stage are really immediate, um, and it's and it's really new. And we're making things that are like brand new. Right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about how you got involved with with Annex. How did that start? Oh, I saw a show that the Annex did um, of Bertolt Brecht's Three Penny Opera. They did it at the Autograph Playhouse, I think, in 2012 or 2013. Um, and I love, I love Bertolt Brecht, and I really love that play. And there were some, in, there were interesting choices that they were making. Mm -hmm. There were beautiful costumes. Um, um, this woman, um, Caitlin, who is no longer with the theater. Um, there's a scene where the Mac the Knife goes to a whorehouse and the whores came out in these um, surged like costumes, which like had the like were like long, very um, covering dresses, but had sort of like the outlines mm -hmm. of like lingerie and garters on them. Um, but in this like very like beautiful, like I think color blocking was like 
really the thing of that season in all the stores and it was like a beautiful abstract color block dress nice. that also had like felt kind of like lingerie and mm-hmm. uh, i just thought there were some really uh brilliant things and i had actually seen the advertisements for auditions for that play and i was just like no i i haven't done theater in a long time mm-hmm. like i can't sing it's a musical i can't sing i'm not going to audition mm-hmm. and then um Right after that, um, Craig Coletta at the Yellow Sign Theater came up to me one day when I was like sitting by a door drinking, like sitting on the floor, basically drinking at the Club Charles. And was like, hey, you want to be in a play? We're doing this Grand Guignol piece. And so I was like, well, I missed my chance to be in Three Penny Opera. I'm going to do this Grand Guignol. And so I worked for maybe I saw that piece by the Annex. I was like, I should have. I should have. Like I saw that there was um. Like a community-ness to the way that they had done their casting, that mm-hmm. like not everyone was professional actors, not everyone had the strongest voice, but that like the sum um, total of the way that production had been done still made it very appealing, mm-hmm. and I felt like it was totally accessible, yeah. like very accessible um, and a permeable wall between um, the community and the people who could get up and do it, and it it's. On that subject, I'll just say that it's been really interesting and great to see people um, move from being sort of like amateur actors just starting Mm -hmm. and watching so many of the people that I started doing theater with like in the past four years, like bloom Mm -hmm. into these really talented actors like not someone I think a lot of times they were chosen for the first role maybe because they just had a look or their voice or something about their personality was good casting for that role. And then just watch these people like Martin Casey, like uh, Dave Iden, um, just like become such bloom into such amazing actors. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry. What was the question? Oh, just, yeah. I think How did I get involved? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I found it was very accessible. The first piece I did also, this was crazy. I auditioned the next time I did audition for the annex, I auditioned for Evan Moritz doing, um, Macbeth. Mm -hmm. And I auditioned for Evan Moritz doing Macbeth. I went in, in like this, like ombre silk dress and like heavy makeup and like really just was trying to play the femme fatale because I wanted to play Lady Macbeth I wanted to play Lady Macbeth but I got up there and I was like reading like from a page like a monologue a monologue from Medea and a monologue from Macbeth that I only had half memorized Mm -hmm. and my voice was shaking and the paper was shaking and I got out of that audition and I was like well, that sucks. Yeah. I'm not going to be in that play. I'm not going to be in that play. Mm-hmm. And then auditions came back two weeks later and I got to play Lady Macbeth, mm-hmm. which is just like coming to a new theater and feeling like you maybe didn't nab the audition, but someone seeing uh, something in you that they feel like they can really use. Yeah. And then getting to work three months on putting together this like really spooky version of this Shakespeare play that was really fun. Um, Basically sold me on the process like completely and sold me on um, the people at the annex. um, uh, Evan, um, Rick Garretts is the technical director. The whole, there wasn't a resident company then, but there was sort of a nascent resident company. Uh, Never um, just, I think a lot of other people have told me this too. 
people who work with the annex just feel really welcome yeah Uh, they come back and they make friends with everyone and then the people who you've worked with are your friends yeah (laughs) let's talk a little bit about just the audition process too because that's something that really intrigues me just from the standpoint of like it's terrifying it seems terrifying like in a way that seems more terrifying to me than actually being in the play just because it feels like a very vulnerable like when you're in a play like you you you've rehearsed you know you're with other people you've kind of got the support system behind you when you're auditioning for a play it kind of seems like you're just kind of out there and like hoping that's like you just said like somebody sees something that you've got and like especially if you like don't feel like you've nailed it uh you kind of walk away thinking like mm-hmm. Uh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well it's it's gotten better for me as an actor and i think it's like a lot of things uh preparation really does help Mm -hmm. just like you would not go on stage for a performance without having known your lines when you have actually studied a monologue that you're bringing to a director to show them and it's something that you've actually spent a lot of time with Mm -hmm. and feel very comfortable doing it really does alleviate a lot of the pressure like and helps it be more fun Mm -hmm. that said i have auditioned for I mean I've been directed several times by people I was in relationships at the time Mm -hmm. like I often have worked with like boyfriends and lovers and uh like there have been times when I went into auditions that I knew the role had been written for me I knew the role had been written for me and I was still like uh, shit 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 shit. sorry sorry let me let me start over let me start over can I start over? Um, so I've still gotten really, really horribly um, discombobulated in, in auditions, even when I knew I had it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is like a, a judged, feeling judged, I guess. There's also none of the assists. Like when you're in a room of collaborators and everyone is, is working on the play and maybe nobody has their lines yet, yeah. you are, are all experimenting with things. Maybe it, sometimes it's hard to feel like you can experiment, like actually experiment in the moment of an audition, which mm-hmm. is maybe the most important thing you should be trying to do. Yeah. Um, I know now having cast a few plays and looking looking for things, one of the most important things that's really hard if people feel stiff or are reading off a paper is that you don't get to really see how they move mm-hmm. as actors, which I think is, it's just so important, like how the, the texture of their body and how comfortable they are making gestures that are like, you know, really different and strange. Right. And, you know, if you're standing with your feet planted and both your hands on a white sheet of eight by 11 paper, you just don't get to do any of that. You don't free your body to really start to move in the way that someone can sympathize with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that auditions, I mean, some people don't even do them. I have, I have some friends that don't um, ask people to bring monologues, just say, fuck that. That's stupid. That's old guard shit. Like, um, like what can you do? Do something. Yeah. I've seen you do uh, karaoke. So I know. Right. Like, actually, you don't have to bring a song. I've seen you do karaoke. I've seen you play a guitar. No problem. And that's also an advantage of being in a close-knit community of artists mm-hmm. where there's a lot of times that I'm um, really 
having someone come in and read sides is enough because I've seen them work. I just want to make sure that they can play these two contrasting characters because sure. I'm actually going to have them play four roles in this play and I need them to snap into really different characters. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, well, let's let's shift to the play that's going on right now at the Annex, which I mentioned, The Stupid Ghost, uh, which I had the pleasure of seeing on Sunday. Uh, talk a little bit about, well, tell people what the what the play is about I guess, because um, it's running now until another week well, or two. Um, so Stupid Ghost runs September 22nd till October 16th. Okay. And the performances are Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at 8 p.m. Okay. Um, they're also, the tickets are $15 if you're a student or you happen to um, be on f like food stamps. You can show your food stamps or your student ID and get a $7 ticket for this show. Nice. Um, which is crazy. But again, like this is this is theater that wants to be accessible right. to the people of Baltimore. Um, so Stupid Ghost is a play um, by Savannah Reich. She used to live in Baltimore. She's been friends of the Annex and um, the Copycat Theater and different theaters around the city. Um, it's a play about a really unself-aware ghost who falls in love with a girl and proceeds to ruin her life. Mm -hmm. um, it's a comedy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. I think, uh, especially for, for the month of October, I feel like it's appropriate because there are some some kind of more horror aspects to it that kind of jump out at you. Um, and it's, it's, it's got, you know, kind of like, uh, cause you know, one of the main characters is two of the main characters are, are teenagers. Uh, and then the ghosts aren't really more mature than <laughs> you would say some of, some of the, they, they I would say, yeah, the, the maturity shown by the teenagers is probably equal or greater than the maturity shown by these, these ghosts. Yeah. Which there's just, it paints a really beautiful, uh, picture of just like what one does to escape loneliness, yeah. I think. And that, and also that this ghost has obviously sort of done, this loneliness to herself mm -hmm. that it's a it's a byproduct of a lot of maybe lots of bad deeds yeah uh i feel like i'm not being super articulate uh carly <laughs> bales uh could do a better job but i know that um some things that are really great about it i, th I think there's some great things like of course we have two teenagers i feel like um my friend Danny, who's the the pretty girl, I think pretty girl and teenage boy are like right. the names of the characters yeah. sort of like in the script. Um, and like, you know, they're both in their late 20s. I think that um, Mike Smith is like actually in his like late 30s, perhaps. And um, and it's like kind of got that after school special of right, like right. the cute teenage boy coming on and being like it being a real grown ass man. Um, <laughs> like. And there's something heightened about the comedy of sort of like the the immaturity of the characters when it's like coming out of a more mature person's right. mouth. I think um, I would like I just felt that this play, uh, the physical comedy in this play is is Looney Tunes. Mm -hmm. It's like that good. It's like th all the gesture, all of the punctuation of joke upon joke is like 
so perfect. Yeah. I think that it's I think it's like maybe an hour and 15 minute play or something. Yeah. It feels like about 15 minutes. You want you want to be able to like in what we were talking about um like streaming and like um overloading on right. TV shows. You just want to be like, "Oh, where's the next one? Where's the next yeah. one?" If you could watch 5 of these in a row, you just would. <laughs> one of the things I really uh also enjoyed about the play is just the the, the physical space itself because it's an intimate setup um i mean you're basically there's no like physical like stage like if you were thinking of a play and you're accustomed to like oh like the actors are on stage i'm here in the audience and then you know that's the barrier there's a lot of you know there's there's parts where there's direct interaction between you know people in the play and people uh in the audience uh, they'll move, they'll walk right past you a lot of the times. Like I was in the front row, so they were like, you know, like very close. In uh, past seasons, um, there have been more than one annex play that we did in a thrust um, configuration, which mm -hmm. basically means that there's like two long lines of audience on both sides, mm -hmm. and the play is going out around in the center. And I'll tell you that this, I think this has actually influenced a lot of the people who've done a lot of work at the annexes acting style in that, there's never really the ability to ignore the audience mm -hmm. and be it's not really a place for completely naturalistic performances right um there's always this sort of like ferris bueller nod to the audience mm -hmm. um and like a take to the audience is always sort of implicit when we're right. so close um and it's interesting i think it actually really affects are, and again, brings back us back into sort of like a vaudevillian um, sort of uh, mannered way of acting. Right. And it can really heighten how much these gestures are sort of almost like silent film gestures in mm -hmm. places because we know, like the audience knows that we know they're there. Yeah. And sometimes we're, you're even the audience is in half light and I can see every person in the audience's face. Right. A funny story about Carly Bales is I was finally in a play um, last fall. Um, there was some short work um, for this variations project. It's like short plays on a theme. Mm -hmm. And we had the um, space, the Baltimore Theater Project space. And I was like, look at this. This is great. I can't see anyone's face for like the <laughs> first time ever. This is like a deep, like, a big stage and like a deep set of audience and I can't see anyone's face. This is, this is going to be so wonderful. And I was doing this play in which I was like a person, a grad student who was writing a dissertation on the Armenian genocide and I was being haunted by my people and I had mm. to have this breakdown and I was like, great, not going to have to see anyone. Carly Bales, my friend, collaborator on 1-800-MICE and the director of Stupid Ghost, just walks in and sits center, front <laughs> stage, as close to me as possible. Right. I was just like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> this was my chance to look out into a sea of blackness and see no one. Nope. Nope. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's transition into 1-800-MICE. Uh, is this, I just want to get this right, is this your first, this is your directorial debut in terms of at the annex except for this one anti-claws play that i did last year at emp mm -hmm. um i've directed um some short plays um in various like one minute and ten minute play festivals right. so this is my second full-length play first one actually for the annex okay has has anything changed since that first one have you kind of picked up some things or changed some things or is it basically the same approach 
Um, I have a lot more actors. <laughs> <laughs> and and I would say that my experience um, doing The Lord of Flies with collaborators um, gave some ideas because I got very hungry mm -hmm. and very itchy to direct during yeah. that process. I was trying to always hold myself back, but there were times when I was just like, God, this would be so much easier if I could just tell people what to right. do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but everyone had their own process in that. And there were times when you could like give notes, um, but it was always more about just letting things play out. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've done some reading, I've done some thinking, but I really appreciate having, um, I really appreciate having an organic way of things coming together. So I picked a cast that I just really love my mm -hmm. whole cast. Um, and we've had about four rehearsals so far and they're already starting to click in and be like, obviously really like each other. Right. There's personalities that are really um, compatible, which I think can be really, really, really important for this kind of thing and getting everyone very comfortable doing very strange things around each other. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes having like, very close and intimate like contact with each right. other during the course of the play. Um, so that's one thing is just thinking about temperament and, and who, uh, what kind of people I wanted to work with and, and mm -hmm. what they offer to the, the whole process. Um, one thing I'm really excited about is um, we have a sound designer named um, John Voigt, who's a musician. He's also an animator. Um, he helped make this um, video called a family affair with ed mm -hmm. schrader that was like on adult swim in the middle of the night nice. um and uh he's our sound designer and one thing that's really i mean maybe a good example of how i like to handle things is that he has been coming to one um rehearsal a week to play music live with rehearsal just like mm -hmm. try things out like on top of rehearsal with rehearsal and he also is hoping to do um the sound live during the shows cool. so it's like he's just like a very special cast member who is again improvising and, mm -hmm. and discovering and trying new things during all the rehearsals as well in the effort to like codify the thing that we like most yeah um so i think again i mean i think a lot of direction is knowing really knowing what you think the characters motivations are and trying to figure out like the through lines to mm -hmm. make the characters like really strong and bold and convincing um giving breathing space um and knowing that like i'm not we have a short play mm -hmm. um i intentionally wrote this script with carly so that it's like you know 100 and you're at an hour and 20 minutes tops yeah. which means that people can take their time with things like you know there is a scene that we were blocking in which a character comes in and ex is examined by a doctor, you know? And so, you know, the first time you do that, maybe they just sit down and like, you know, take, take a pulse or something. Mm -hmm. But through encouragement, you know, the actor can try many things. Yeah. Um, and we can find these moments of physical comedy that maybe aren't immediately apparent, but the, like, no, we're actually gonna, we're gonna really soak this right. moment for all that we can in physical comedy. And then if something stops working or it seems like the pace is done, we can cut something, but let's try to find, find all the moments and like really experience all the moments and be like encouraging the actor to visualize that all these things are real mm -hmm. um, and really be in those moments and not be doing something that's uh, like a simple shorthand 
Like yeah. how much can we soak into and actually be in that moment and illustrate it completely? And then that's how I think time starts to pass in a way where when you do have an interruption, it's really comedic or really mm. tragic. You have to like set that space up as um, just like really truthful. And then if something interrupts it and is unexpected, that's where the comedy comes. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, what you're describing sounds like a very organic process. And I know uh, just in terms of creation, a lot of the times when you have an idea in your head or even like before you can really get to like the meat of the thing, like you say, okay, this is what, this is what we're going to do. And then you start doing it and then you're like, oh, we're not going to do that at all. We're going to do something completely different. Uh, just because a lot of the times when 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 things are in front of you and you're seeing things you're seeing you know the actors actually you know reading the dialogue and like performing the scenes and all of that stuff you know stuff starts coming to you um but again now you're in the position where you're calling the shots and you're and you're seeing all of the stuff um i think sometimes the hardest thing to do is just kind of be like i like that we have to cut that like that's not gonna fit into you know the, the grand scheme of what we're trying to accomplish uh mm -hmm. so uh i know it's you, you, you're editorially luckily yeah. like i'm not i'm not really in the i'm less in the editorial process okay. right now like i because i do find that early and i again it's the first few rehearsals for this show specifically it's all about letting people do more yeah like really empowering them to find as many different ways they can go and then when you start to do i would say i have about maybe three more weeks of of blocking and working on individual scenes before we start shifting over to doing um full runs of the mm. show and i think that since we have we have plenty of time to do this i find it's a lot more helpful to start to more editorialize at that point where we're doing like slightly larger blocks of the show because we right. can see how everything is really moving into each other and we can see if something feels slower and sometimes it's not even that it, ca it has to be like taken out it's just uh a lot of it is just these like pregnant pauses mm -hmm. that people like to add yeah to feel dramatic and it's just like a lot of it is cool no you can you can say that whole thing or you can make that whole gesture you just have to keep on talking while right. you're doing it like we have to keep the tempo going and and maybe like inaction has to be really really charismatic like stagnation and um kind of a lack of movement on stage has to have some very strange and magical charisma to be interesting mm -hmm. and otherwise just keep on moving keep on keep on bringing it keep on moving right keep it keep it moving um and before we we came on air we were talking about just uh some other just visual elements that you're trying to add uh to the play just in terms of like maybe some projection or you know some other stuff oh like that. yeah well i have some great designers um and i'm very excited about meredith moore who um you should know if you're on the internet right now you should just look at her videos on youtube she makes really um interesting and strange videos um and she's been working in Baltimore for, you know, as long as I've been in Baltimore. I think I first saw a piece of hers. Maybe not quite, but I've seen, I first saw a piece of hers in like maybe 2006 or 2007. And I remember it was just this like beautiful kaleidoscope of spinning diamonds. Mm -hmm. um, I think that right now she might be more engaged in making some sort of... Um, 
kind of like glitchy assemblages and i think she's going to be making some interesting glitchy assemblages that might be sort of like taking in aspects of like captain kangaroo and some of those really funky looking 1970s morning tv shows because we're living in this world in 1-800 mice where people are kind of like hybrid animals Mm -hmm. um there's a the cast of um of junkie a junkie gang called the dapper chaps that are known for just like dressing real cool mm. so we're gonna have some really uh interesting uh lush costuming and i feel like this is going to be a, a um a counterpoint to it but i mostly have been just um i'm gonna get to have a conversation with my design team tonight um very much looking forward to but one thing i'm looking to resolve is just um how to use these projections to augment the world that the characters are in rather than to flatten it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a little theater, like you said, it's a small space. It's like basically a black box. So we do build it out in a different way every time we have yeah. a show. Um, and, but we don't have a lot of space in the theater. It's about the same size as this like loft space we're in now. Um, this is probably a little bit more open mm-hmm. and, um, there's not an ability to have you to have a ton like crazy drops yeah. or um, you can, you can have some things kind of move a little bit. Um, you can have some curtains pulled. You can maybe have a few set pieces brought in and brought out, but it's a pretty minimal changeover from scene to scene. So if you're trying to get this like lush, lush switch of scenery, it's like how much of that can you do Yeah. with the characters indicating they're in a new place by the way they look and feel um and it's amazing it's like you do actually think when you're reading a script even you're like oh now they're in a forest they have to be in a forest right um and when you watch a play it's so much more fun when there's a new scene announced by a character Mm -hmm. and you can tell the difference of where they are based on the movements and body language of the characters and, and how they use the space. Right. Um, you can create walls. I mean, that's why this physical theater is so important. I mean, it's not like a mime in a box exactly, but so much about how a, a actor holds their body can just transform the space completely. And you don't need to have created like a, a, a huge set drop or a, a major change. Sometimes just where the light is on the stage can illuminate a whole new area, um, which is which is why we can make theater. Like we can do it. Yeah, It's not impossible to just get with your friends, decide to put on theater and like do it for like, you know, have a whole play. It'll cost less than $500. If you have your friends come, you'll get the $500 back and you can do another play. Right. Well, I think uh, just talking about that, a lot of the times restrictions prompt ingenuity. Uh, when you know, oh, I don't have a lot of money to do this or, you know, the physical space that we're in isn't, you know, the size of, you know, a, a, a big theater. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that happens that, you know, as an audience maybe you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like that's a cool, you know, use of, you know, either the the props or the space, like in, you know, Stupid Ghost, like they used the same prop as a bed, as a car, and as a canoe. And it all felt the like a different The canoe was thing. so great. The yeah. canoe scene really, uh, really felt, again, really felt atmospheric, really felt like you were in a completely different different space and with nothing, a, a paddle. Yeah. 
a paddle used well was yeah. all that was needed to make that into a into a canoe um and not that not that not that poor like you know um Grotowski calls it poor theater not that poor theater doesn't cost any money sure you know it, it's still it's yeah. still there's rents and there's and there's everyone gets a little bit of a stipend at the annex and so um there's there's costs but it's so worth it mm-hmm. and it's not a reason not to do things Trapping it's stuff. interesting when there are definitely some people who um you know i've worked with or i have a, a good friend a very good friend who's like very invested in making um theater in dc and I just see that he has to put a lot more into the front end mm-hmm. of getting his work produced in ways that I just personally would be very frustrated by. Yeah. I think it would be the the thing that would keep me from wanting to produce if I had to produce in a way where, you know, it was I had to come up with two thousand dollars up front. Mm-hmm. just to use the space yeah. and then also the expectation from everyone was that since it was in this space the the quality and level and like maximalness of the performance needed to match it in every way mm-hmm. it's just not it's interesting to me yeah uh well apart from directing the play you're also adapting it from uh, a comic by matthew thurber called 100 mice mm-hmm. uh talk a little bit about the challenges of that too because again I, I would imagine maybe adapting the play from say a novel or taking a play like a shakespeare or you know something that's been done before you can kind of say oh okay like i've seen this done before or like you know reading you know the the novel like i can approximate you know kind of what i'm seeing in my head comics are more of a visual medium you can actually physically see you know on the page like what you're looking at and kind of the things that you want to transcribe but at the same time um you know you it's it's got a very especially i mean comics like this have a very abstract kind of feel to them where it's not like you know like (laughs) comics as a lot of people say comics have an unlimited budget because it's basically your imagination whatever you can oh yeah so you know again this could be a very high budget play (laughs) if i had really tried to do everything that was in this comic right um it did attract me from the beginning to work from a comic to make an adaptation because of the fact that it's sort of like a storyboard right um and I loved that I loved Matthew Thurber's work and I really loved this comic. Um, it's very, very strange and all over the place. And um, there's all these micro, micro, micro plots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't fully understand some major parts of this comic. There was a lot of mystery in it. Mm-hmm. So one wonderful thing about adapting it is that basically how I began the process was just by trying to figure out the simplest the simplest through line the simplest storyline and start to take those parts of the text and Mm. assemble them in that storyline and then because like yeah the the comic is made up of scenes that would be like literally 20 second scenes right like lots and lots of quick it's very filmic in that way it's like a montage of short short scenes mm-hmm. and so 
my first task was just finding all of the scenes with the characters that were most important to the plot and starting to squish them together into larger and larger and meatier scenes so we could actually audiences kind of can't have that level of montage on stage. Sure. There's something different about film where they know that that's what it is and they can handle the, the three second jump cut. But in, in theater, like it's, it's really hard for people to have that suspension of disbelief and believe what they're seeing mm -hmm. and be moved by it. If it's, if it's that fast. So you yeah. have to make it much larger chunks of information for people to start to, to process it and make, um, make sense of it. Mm -hmm. So the, it was just sort of a really beautiful thing of as I started doing this, grouping these scenes into longer and longer and longer sections, uh, m the plot started making more and more and more sense to me. And mm -hmm. like aspects of the plot that had been sort of mysterious or seemed uncon seemed unconnected, seemed part of the same world, but maybe not actually central to the plot mm -hmm. started to snap in. So actually, I encourage anyone who was thinking, I had a friend come up to me and say, well, I, I got the, um, the omnibus of all the comics. Do you prefer that I come to your play having not read it? Mm -hmm. or, or should I read it before I come? Right. And I actually think that if you read Matthew Thurber's 1-800-MICE and then you come to the play, it will be like someone, the, the comic is like a dream and the play is like a film of a dream. Mm -hmm. Like if you tried to make your your dream into a thing that actually made com like a complete sense afterwards. Although I also just like felt such admiration and such increased respect for this artist, Matt Thurber, who I already respected. Mm -hmm. um, because while it seems like a hallucinogenic like nonsense in places in the comic, as I started assembling it, Everything had a everything had a perfect place. Right. Everything made perfect sense. Um, so it's been that was just really gratifying. Mm -hmm. um, it ended up being like a kind of constructing this script ended up being like a kind of reading, like a kind of very deep reading of the comic that I probably wouldn't have had uh, any any reason to go so deep with it right. otherwise. Um, but it's much loved by a lot of people. At least two of the people on my cast so far have, have one of them had read it already. Now mm -hmm. a few of them have read it. So we get to really have this augmented uh, understanding of the script through mm -hmm. these, this whole other visual imagery. Um, there's some places that I guess we'll, we'll take um, some like costuming ideas um, from the play. There's a few blocking concepts that are sort of like from, from the, um, the storyboard that we're given mm -hmm. in the comic, but a lot of things are going to, you know, there's a lot of smaller, smaller sub sub subplots that will just have to be left by the wayside sure. for a, a cogent, a cogent piece of theater. But right. I mean, it's great. Yeah. So yeah, that was the process. That's how I approached it. And then I, um, Carly Bales, who's my collaborator in writing it. Um, there are kind of like scenes that I was just like, this scene, this scene is like, this is what needs to happen in this scene. Right. Actually, I think that the, the vision of work was like, I, I probably like structured the play and um, found everything I needed um, 
from the comic and there were some places where it, like basically we just needed to create something completely new mm-hmm. and I'd be like okay Carly you have to re- like write these three right. scenes like I assembled everything else and like edited it and kind of like made it made it go and uh got her you know creative really smart writing in a few scenes that kind of needed to be more created from scratch mm-hmm. so I was really happy and surprised by everything that I saw added by her. And we were basically doing it just by working on a common Google Doc. There wasn't nice. really a lot of, like, as opposed to The Lord of Flies, where it was, like, us in a room mm-hmm. having to come to consensus about every plot point. Right. Because we were really treating the comic book as sort of a, a Bible more for how we were proceeding. We didn't have to have any of those kind of conversations about, like, well, what, what's going to be happening here? Right. It was just, like, follow follow the the grand scheme of the the script and if you're adding something kind of keep it in the same like sort of sense of humor tonality as as like the the writing of the comic book awesome uh well let's let's wrap up the annex conversation with 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 two things that i know you wanted to get out there one uh there are acting classes uh going on at the annex and as well there's going to be a upcoming fundraiser uh, on the 21st, I believe. So tell everybody a little bit about both of those. Oh my gosh. I went to, um, so, I mean, I feel like I've mostly talked about my collaborators, um, a a lot, but, um, Evan, Evan Mortz, who is our artistic director is, um, offering these acting classes. Um, and I want to just pull up a little bit more information. We're doing them three days a week. Um, and there are acting rudiments classes, beginning beginning classes and intermediate classes. Um, So Sunday from three to 4.15 are the beginner classes. Um, And I think that means um, maybe you did theater in high school, maybe you've been in a play, um, but you feel like you're new to it. Mm -hmm. Um, The rudiments is like really, really beginner. Like I don't even know how to speak. Uh, I have never done public speaking. I feel very bashful. Mm. Um, I have no experience in this. Like anyone, really, really anyone welcome. No, no need to. Just curiosity mm-hmm. is more than enough. Um, and then we have in, an intermediate class, which we're doing some more challenging physical exercises. Um, and so there's a, and that's, uh, sorry, the, the rudiments of acting is 6 to 7.15 on Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. And the intermediate classes three to four fifteen on Saturdays. Um, so there's a schema in these classes, which I think is really really interesting. In that there's I think about twelve weeks of any class will kind of um, push you up. So right now there's only an intermediate class, mm-hmm. but sometime in the next twelve to fourteen weeks, that's going to go to an advanced class where there is going to be like a more independent study on um, kinds of kinds of movement technique, on mime, on like no theater, um, things that have a higher level of needing to have built some other kinds of skills mm-hmm. to be able to kind of execute. Um, so I think that's what's going to happen is like maybe 12 to 14 weeks, like maybe the rudiments class becomes the beginner class, the beginner class becomes the intermediate class, okay. and then there's an advanced, there's an advanced class. Um, so we're, and then I think that once you've been in the advanced class, once you've taken these advanced classes, it's really um, in the service of trying to 
um, build a base of teachers, a wider base of teachers. So it's almost like the Charm City Yoga yeah. uh, model of like, go to these classes, go to this teaching program, and then you can start also teaching these classes. Because mm -hmm. it'd be great to have a, a broader um, community support for also teaching. Mm -hmm. Because there are some classes, um, you know, Everyman, I've done some classes at the Everyman. Single Carrot has some classes that are available, but it would also be great. Like, these are also, I would like to say, um, $5 drop-in classes. Okay. Um, they are going to happen continually. Again, they're sort of like a yoga practice in that, that we're learning um, things that are applicable. And you can come one week, not come two weeks, come another week, and it doesn't affect the flow mm -hmm. of classes. Um, I know that in the beginning finish class, I think that um, they're going to be doing some scene work. So there's a there's a short list of things. I think it might be on the website of some of the plays that um, the beginners class are going to be working from. Um, so it's a nice chance to like, you know, experience taking direction, learning some of the basic skills. And also it's like it's five dollars. Come down to that 219 Park Avenue space and just um, check it out. Mm -hmm. The first one that I went to, um, the intermediate class last Saturday, was just so much fun. Mm -hmm. I had such a good time. And my legs really ached afterwards. <laughs> I thought I was just doing some really fun, weird jumping exercise. And then the next day I woke up and I felt like I had been working out like for hours. So right. it was really it, good for the body, good for the soul. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about the the fundraiser that's coming up. Yeah, I think that we're we're still in the process. It's a uh, it's coming up soon, but um, we're working on getting some um, food and um, alcohol donations, um, and collaborating with a bunch of um, musicians and visual artists who have been collaborators with the Annex in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so I think sometime in the next week we'll start to see some um, more information up on the website. Um, I know there are some really special guests that I feel like we're just a hair away from confirming. So okay. I just can't um, speak about them yet. But sure. um, it is going to be at the Contemporary. Um, um, sorry. No. It's going to be at the Current Gallery, which is on Howard Street, on like the 400 block of Howard Street. Mm hmm which is also very advantageous for us because um, the Annex Theater is a partner in this p this project called the Lamondo Project, which is a like three building project um, on Howard Street in the old Uniform City Building, mm -hmm. um, in which we're creating theater space, studio space, a bar, um, a restaurant, and some um, different level of um of apartments probably eventually maybe some retail space but the big uniform city building that um the annex has been at work at renovating for about a year now is going to be a site that we can tour during this so if you come to the fundraiser there'll be food drink mm -hmm. entertainment and also an opportunity to come um down the street just a little bit down the street and see this new space that we've been investing all this time and energy into nice. Awesome. Well, let's let's wrap things up with my one and only segment of the show, which is kind of a rapid fire question. People don't really answer them rapid fire style. So if you feel like you want to take some time, that's fine. Uh, it's called five questions. So I have five questions. Uh, All right. First question. Uh, since we did used to work at a museum together, I know you're somebody who's into the museums. Uh, what are some of your favorite museums here in Baltimore? 
Oh, I mean, can I just answer that my actual favorite museum in the world is the Louisiana Museum in Denmark? All right. Let's uh, hear about it. It's, uh, it's just beautiful. Um, I've, I was there, and it was fall, and I think the Scandinavians just, like, love, love light. They mm-hmm. love light because they are so strapped for having light so much of the year. So um, it was just... It's hard to explain why, but there was design, there was architecture there, and um, there's also something that's sort of rare in a museum is that there's a passageway between these two galleries that has these huge windows facing outwards to the water. It's on this point. It's close to Hamlet's Castle and Elsinore, like that's sort of the area of Denmark it's in. And um, I never felt quite so much like I was like in a performance when I was going through a gallery, just like the mood and um, and the pacing of each room really felt like I was in, you know, acts of a play. Mm-hmm. And um, there was this, um, I think it was like, there was a, a perform, perf- seemed like a performance, but it was an installation down in the basement. Um, and I know it's by a pretty famous artist. I can't remember the name of the the project or the artist right now but it was this room that was filled with sand and there was like five cars in it and um, this scene that was like mixed with like clowns and people maybe about to do like implicit violence. Um, Mm. So it just, it felt like a strange end of like rebel without a cause. It's like if the juggalos came to like the car race at the end of like rebel without a cause and it was like this three dimensional like sort of like mannequins or sculptures of people like mid like blow like with this like crazy roundup of cars and like the light was really intense in the center Mm -hmm. and you just suddenly were like in this whole move through the gallery it just felt as if you were being brought to some sort of like crescendo Mm -hmm. and then there just like was one and it was just one of the most beautiful museum experiences i've ever had all right um but I mean, I love I love Baltimore museums uh, as well. Um, I ha- I haven't been to the BMA as often, um, but I think that the best thing in Baltimore is like that little black box room in the contemporary wing of the BMA. Mm-hmm. Um, they always have new films there, nice. um, and I think it's one of the freshest and also one of the most continually changing um, parts of their installations. I always rush there to the black room the black box room nice question number two um apart from all the plays at at annex what i what's what are you could one two one or two plays that you've seen this year here in baltimore that you really enjoyed i saw um this is like i don't know we i also am very attached to the work of psychic readings which Mm -hmm. is rick royer's company um i saw a very strange play that he did um last week that was called Dead Lessons, mm-hmm. um, which see, it, there was an urn full of real ashes used in this play. All right. Um, and it was sort of about failed s- memory and, uh, and like a desire to, to return to memories, but them just coming, like becoming like sort of more pathetic as you return to them mm-hmm. and the desire to look back, like, you know, like lots wife's desire to look back just being this like kind of ugly impulse is how i I understood it the the play Mm -hmm. um but that was great and it had a sort of uh 
level of mystery you came into an empty space and there were cards with people's names and then our guide who was rick royer like took us down into this cavernous basement space um where we had like a separate set mm-hmm. of that looked like um a broken school bus it was like um school bus benches with two of the legs removed so it was like this little v of strange school bus benches that like nice. actors did very uh, kind of swam in um so that was that was great um what's another what's my next favorite thing that i saw in baltimore oh okay i just saw um this um play that was done at the yellow sign theater by my friends um alex hacker and scotty burke called the um his majestic lump of foul deformity okay and it was a dissection and sort of assemblage of richard the third but as played by junius booth mm-hmm. who was um john wilkes booth father who okay. was supposed to be one of the best actors of his time um in his stage assistant um who i don't remember what the character's name was but it was like them restaging all of the most intense scenes from Richard the Third, mm-hmm. um, Shakespeare's Richard the Third, but then with this like um, banter between the two characters, which was always un- undercutting what was happening in the play. Um, there were these moments where um, there was a lot of po- like really intense power play between the characters, mm-hmm. and this exploration of whether or not this like sort of insane king. Um, was ever being character like really acted by this character or if this character just was this insane king mm-hmm. sort of like the the invisibility between these two roles and then this very shift quick quick shifting um for um so the king um Richard the 3rd was being played by Scotty Burke um and he just like stayed in this fever like this expressionistic fever for like the full 2 hour play um and Alex Hacker had this like much more I- ironic sort of like bantering back between like coming on like in in drag playing the queen mm-hmm. and like then like being really sardonic and undercutting the character at some point um he insists like richard the third um has um two nephews and they come on as sock puppets and um which is like it's a ri- it's a <laughs> A especially interesting scene just because if you read that part of Richard the Third, it's it's pretty clearly a comedic scene. Yeah. It's like a funny scene, but it's always done so tragically and it like took like making the characters like actually sock puppets to get it back into this comedic light. Right. Um so that was done. That was only two weekends. Um they might put it on for one more weekend, I heard. Okay. Um but yeah, that's gonna happen. Possibly that'll happen again probably at the Yellow Sign Theater. Um but it was it was a really fun thing and that that was actually all stuff that i just saw in the past week right that's why i was like i i hope some of these are still <laughs> happening because now i kind of want to see both of those so uh keep an eye out i guess uh yeah things happen like flash in the pan sometimes right. here so i again like if you can stay abreast of things like uh like find yellow sign theater find psychic readings um on facebook like get on their mailing list because some of this stuff is just uh, underground in a way that it happens fast and that's kind of what you do when you maybe don't have a ton of a, bu- a budget right. and you're just like having all your friends show up to do a play for mm-hmm. a short period of time like it, it happens fast so get on those mailing lists pay attention to what's coming up because i know how it is before i was like just immersed in this completely i felt that i was always just missing some of the things that i wanted to see 
All right. I still feel that way about visual <laughs> art because yeah. I like you know I'm been so involved in this that I'm like, oh, your gallery shows down. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Baltimore is is a very very artistic city, um, and I feel like even a lot of people who live in Baltimore don't realize like how much art is happening on just a weekly basis, just all over the city. So. Good to know. Good to mm-hmm. <laughs> good to know, have some some sources where you can keep up with stuff. Um, question number three: It is October, which means it is Halloween season. Uh, Halloween plans, Halloween costumes. Got any ideas? Oh well, I'm just gonna watch. Um, it's it's the great it's the great pumpkin by Char- the Charlie Brown yeah. uh, Halloween special over and over and over <laughs> and over again. Um, I honestly have been thinking about the co- every, everyone else's costumes for my play more mm-hmm. than I've been thinking about um, my own costume. M- my favorite costume I ever did was two years ago. I think it was two years ago. Um, I had three friends dress up as rhyming, like kind of rhyming um, costumes. Mm-hmm. I was Puro the Clown. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend was Ross Perot <laughs> with big ears and like a, oh, that like some graphs about the economy. Right. And like um, uh, Poirot, Poirot the detective from the <laughs> series was my third friend in a little gray suit and a fake mustache. Nice. Which was actually so much more fun than any of those costumes would have been on their own. Right. Just always getting to be like, Poirot, Poirot, Poirot. Did people, were people getting it? or were people A lot of, of people confused? got it. A lot of people <laughs> got it. And it was funny because a lot of, also it was exciting because uh, my friend Ren Pepitone, who's um, wonderful and just, uh, just jumped ship from Baltimore to go. Um, except a tenure track position at University of Arkansas mm-hmm. wah, wah, um, in her professorial way was very good at going up to people and like explaining the <laughs> costume like explaining it until they laughed while I kind of was like hanging back and just being like if you get it you get it if right. you don't you don't but like Ren was like nope <laughs> and would explain it to each person and then have us do like a little pantomime of mm. like what our what our costume was which was like really funny <laughs> A follow-up question is how is halloween because now i'm thinking about it is it is it a bigger deal in the theater community Do people really go all out just costumize or is it kind of like i actually think it's year? a little bit less so yeah. yeah i think that everyone else it's their only chance to be someone else it, one of my friends i won't mention his name because i don't want to embarrass <laughs> him but he is theater is his life and he hates halloween <laughs> he gets so grumpy on halloween he's just like I don't know why I have to do this. Right. <laughs> so I kind of feel like, yeah, I, I don't, I wouldn't want, I'm always really impressed actually by, uh, by non people who aren't necessarily like devoted to being artists every day mm-hmm. um, or are not interested in performance really at all. I love Halloween cause I love watching everyone suddenly be dedicated to yeah. being performative. And I sort of, yeah, I sort of like, don't i don't feel as compelled to do it mm-hmm. um because i'm sort of like oh i have a time and place for this where right. i get to do it in a in a different way if i find um you know i think my prediction though my prediction for halloween costumes is that we're gonna see a lot of bald little girls eating waffles yeah I was at at, uh, at Baltimore Comic Con. There was definitely a lot of uh, L's, a lot of L's, a lot of lot of guy L's, a lot of female L's. That's my. I think that's going to be the most popular yeah. costume. That and and, you know, maybe some uh, like weird 
um, surrealistic Donald Trump costumes, yeah. like tur- like ham faces, <laughs> ham faces with weird like strange wigs on yeah. top of them. I think surrealistic Donald Trump and um, L from Stranger Things are gonna be our our top contenders for right. best gonna, costumes. I'm gonna keep a tally, and then we can compare notes. Uh, Wonderful. The um, question number four. Uh, this is a question that you can interpret however you want. Um, but it's, it's, what do you think is something that Baltimore needs? So again, it could be, you know, I don't really see a lot of, uh, this kind of restaurant around here. I'd like to have some of that food or it could be all the way to, to social issues or maybe just, you know, uh, architecture wise or space wise. So, uh, I would love to see Baltimore invest in like non-defensible public space. Like mm-hmm. that would be great. Um, when you, you see it in certain places, like, it's kind of almost a phenomena that there are those like kind of um, flower petal parks around right. mon- the monument and Mount uh, in the in, uh, in Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like atypical for the how public space is used in Baltimore. Um, more more parks, more things that are not designed to keep people out. Mm-hmm. More things that uh, allow for different kinds of interactions that are not um, based in like selling someone a cup of coffee would be great right um and then let's just say my other wish for baltimore is uh more community policing sure <laughs> sounds like a good idea yeah those, those give that a try i feel like other things that are important like great in baltimore are kind of happening in spite of mm-hmm. like some great things are happening in spite of them not being that well planned so right. i'm okay <laughs> with that uh, no and uh okay so also no port covington okay Let's get that out there. <laughs> um, and then finally, question number five. Again, you can take this however you want it. Uh, give us one of your, your Baltimore stories. So in the sense of, you know, you're walking around, it's daytime, it's nighttime, and you see something, you're just kind of like, oh, Baltimore. Like, it's just it's just the thing that, like, you know, somebody. About, okay, okay, okay. Oh, uh, you got this it? is not outside. This is not outside. It was actually in this building. I'm in the copycat right now. And... Um, the copycat, maybe five years ago, there was a really beautiful um, multi-room play that they called the Rooms Plays here. Mm-hmm. Um, they did it like three times, but the first one I went to not really knowing what to expect. And I went with the person that I was dating at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was this this r- really immersive experience where you got put in all these rooms and had to uh, do things or solve riddles or... Um, be given a piece of poetry so I was like kind of on a date with someone who I had recently started sleeping with Mm -hmm. and so I walked into this one of the rooms and it was a dating game and I got sat down one of the hosts was my second cousin who I didn't even know did theater in Baltimore The other host was the other person that I was dating. Nice. So I was sat down with the person I was dating, another person I was dating, and a blood relative in a room just at random to experience a piece of theater. Great. That is Baltimore. <laughs> that is Baltimore. <laughs> like, don't try to hide anything. It's don't don't try to be deceptive in Baltimore because Baltimore. It, is, it is a fishbowl. Yeah. <laughs> just be honest. Well, let's 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 end with this. This is your chance to to plug away. So tell us where people uh, could find you, could see you online, in real life, all of that stuff. Oh, 
I don't have a website. <laughs> I'm going to get one soon, though. I'm, I'm going to get one soon. I mean, I would just come and see 1-800-MICE this November. That would be great. Um, stay abreast of the Annex Theater and all of our goings on there at BaltimoreAnnexTheater.org. And um, you can find me on Facebook if you want to friend me. I do repost um, a lot of these theater happenings. And so I can be your personal uh, introducer to all these small events if you nice. just... If you just send me a message and say, hey, I heard the podcast and uh, I wasn't turned off by how many times you said, mm, uh, <laughs> eh, weird. All right. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. <laughs>